the weekly show with David J. Maloney. This week, David chats with Camille Griffin, writer and director of Silent Night. And now, here's your host, David J. Maloney. Our featured guest tonight is the writer and director of the brand new film, Silent Night. Uh, If you go by nothing other than the high regard with which her actors and actresses hold her in, she's going to be a director to be watching for years to come. Here to talk about her journey and her feature film, Silent Night, is writer and director Camille Griffin. Camille, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Thank you. First off, I'd like for us to get uh, to know you guys a little bit better. Where are you from and and what was life like uh, for you growing up? Oh, well, that's a good question, because I think um, some of the inspiration of, um, of our film was um, my, my inner conflict with my own environment, which was um, I was brought up in Sussex, which is uh, the southeast of England and uh, in quite a privileged middle class environment. And I had a French Sicilian mother and, um, and a, an English stepfather. And I was sent to boarding school very young. So um, I on one, had a, on one hand had a very privileged childhood and on another hand, I was brought up by a lot of disturbed posh people. So um, most of my material has always related to challenging the dysfunctions of the middle classes. So what would you say is, is, is your first film memory? I, I, my first was seeing Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory with my parents when I was probably like three or four. Scared the living hell out of me. I, I think I stayed away from candy for weeks. And then my next big film, I think, that I remember was Star Wars seeing. And that kind of opened my eyes to movies forever. What would you say was your first film memory? Well, I mean, obviously, I can't remember the very first film I watched, but I do remember that when I was growing up, I, I, I say this to my children sometimes, when I was a child, we only had three uh, channels on the television, and they're like, oh, yeah, we, don't, we don't want to hear about how miserable your childhood was. But um, <clears throat> on a Sunday afternoon, they'd play Cary uh, Grant movies, which I always loved. But my father, my, my real father, was obsessed with war movies. And uh, I, I think my really my biggest relationship with cinema growing up was watching... Um, uh, Indiana Jones movies. I was obsessed with Harrison Ford, um, and then I also had this French uh, French theme in my in my childhood. So we'd watch French cinema. So I think my greatest influence was probably learning as a as a teenager about French cinema and experiencing the world through through their eyes, which actually made sense to me more uh, culturally in a way than the actual environment I was living in. Um, but I, my first horror moment, I remember was a film called uh, The Passage with Malcolm McDowell. And I remember seeing that and, and it shook me. I mean, it was, he, I think he plays a Nazi and he talked to someone and I never recovered from that. And then, and then another, another film that I think inspired some of this journey was a film called um, Where the Wind Blows, which was um, uh, Raymond Briggs. He was a famous uh, cartoonist and he wrote, uh, he made a, a film, which was a cartoon film about this um, older couple living in a small house during a nuclear war. And I remember as a kid discovering, um, uh, can you hear my washing machine in the background? No, I can't. Okay, okay fine. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, discovering what a nuclear war was. And I remember being very young, maybe nine or something, eight or nine. And it horrified me, the idea that we weren't, possibly that the world wasn't safe. And I wasn't really in an environment where I was, that was being kind of like cushioned. So uh, I never really recovered from that, thinking, well, how, how does a child grow up in a world without feeling safe? And what does it mean to feel safe? And then Kira said it quite beautifully recently. She said that when, um, when you become a parent, 
you give birth to fear. And, and I think it's very, very true um, that the minute I gave birth, all my neurosis kind of escalated. And it was like, how do I protect my children from, uh, you know, from the world or from, or from catastrophe, from, you know, um, tsunamis and, and, and wars and all those things. So, and pandemics. And pandemics. And I've always occupied a place of, um, of positivity, but complete melancholia. So I think that really is, the film is a good, uh, a good, a good um, look into my character as such. Yeah. It, it's funny that you would mention, I guess, you know, Harrison Ford and, and, and that brings in Han Solo because I was looking through your previous work. And so at one point, did, did you actually get to work on uh, Star Wars episode one? Yes, I've actually got one of the clapperboards. I did some second camera work as a camera assistant. And, and um, well, in those days, we were still using film, you know, um, to shoot films. And uh, I was unloading the mags, the magazines, and I was working in the camera truck and um, the generator was plugged in and I had, was in the dark room and you had one of those little switches you turned on and off. Then I touched in, it was no light in the truck. So I was unloading the mag, my first day on Star Wars and um, oh, which George Lucas was directing. And uh, the camera truck driver plugged in a Jenny and the light came on and the first rushes were exposed and it was hell that I had to go on set and tell George Lucas that his rushes had been exposed. But yes, I did have that experience. I had an amazing experience working in film and television and commercials. I, I learned an awful lot in the camera department, which I think is an, a great thing for a filmmaker to have those experiences. And now you're here releasing your debut feature film, Silent Night. Did you always know that you wanted to eventually write and direct feature films? Oh, I've been trying for years. The British film industry wouldn't fund my films. I've been writing screenplays since I was 25. I'm 47 now. Um, so I've been trying for an awful long time. And it was only when I gave up going to them, I decided when I wrote Silent Night, I'd come off the back of Jojo Rabbit, being with Roman on Jojo Rabbit. And I saw Taika Waititi using comedy and it was a complete... Uh, turning point in my life because I was like wow if you use comedy you can talk about anything and I think my my depressive material that I couldn't my ambitious depressive material couldn't get funded so I came home and wrote this comedy this dark comedy at the point of saying okay this is my last attempt I've tried for so long and everyone shut the doors and they won't open the doors and um, my intention was to make this film independently and not to ask the gatekeepers for their support and at one point I said to my husband shall I reach out to Matthew Vaughan to see if he would uh, maybe give me some advice and Ben was like, no, it's not his kind of movie. I was like, no, I just needed his advice. I just, you know, and I didn't know how to ask for help. Uh, it, was, it was a big thing learning how to ask for help. So I did, I went to him for help and he said, let's make this movie. So that's, um, so I've always wanted to be a filmmaker since I was a kid, but, it, but it's a hard journey to become a filmmaker and you don't always get to become a filmmaker. Well, I was, what's funny is because I was going to ask you about that because I, I heard you talk about the fact before that you've written many scripts and, and some very, very serious ones at that, but that Silent Night was the first one to find the appropriate funding. And uh, would you say that what was different about it that helped it was because of the fact that you could take this more serious type of content or subject matter and add a humorous element to it? I think it was a mixture of two things. I think the comedy definitely helped. And I think finding a fellow filmmaker like Matthew, I'm just going to try and give me some more light, who is courageous and brave. And he's more than just a filmmaker, he's an entrepreneur. And I think the message I could possibly share is write what you want to write, look at the approach to the stories you're telling, and also look for the right home for it. And I think I've been looking in the wrong place for years. Ah. I, didn't know, I don't know how that could have changed because I didn't know that. 
because you go to the people who make films. You go to the funders in your area, in your country, and you say, please support me. And I'd done everything I could to be supported by them. I'd been on every scheme and jumped through every possible hoop. And it was only at the point of complete sheer desperation and the point of complete kind of like, um, uh, when you give into something, I can't remember the word, um, acceptance that I found the right home. Did, did, did that leave you concerned at any point in the process of making it that you were either making it too serious on one hand or too funny on the other? Did you have to find the right balance or did you kind of know what you wanted to express all along and just just stayed, stayed, on, stayed on the path? I think I definitely had a, a, a truth, a complete trust in what I was trying to achieve. I knew I could achieve it. I didn't doubt that. But because I had no status, I had to convince my bosses, my financiers and my producers. So it wasn't so much like we have to have this, we have to have that. I knew that the comedy was going to facilitate the drama. I knew that that was absolutely necessary. Um, so and I also knew we had to transition um, from each each act from like comedy to uh, to comedy drama to horror and that that would be a challenge. Um, so I knew that preserving the, the humor in the drama was essential. And I knew that that was a balance, but I wasn't frightened. I knew I could do that. But I think some of the, the elements of the story were harder because I, I instinctively knew these things would work, but they didn't trust me or they didn't, it's not they didn't trust me, they, they, I couldn't promise them that. And they, they're filmmakers of them at their own and they're very successful. So I definitely think the status thing of, maybe if I'd made 10 films before I could have gone, look, you've seen what I've done before. So they took courageous choices in supporting me, as did the actors, as did the crew. Um, but at times I had to fight hard for what I believed would work that wasn't automatically a given. It's kind of like when I started this show with me trying to get a house band. I had to fight for that forever. Um, so let, let's, let's, talk, let's talk about the film itself. Can you tell our audience what the film is about and, and where did that story originate from? Um, I would say the film is a satirical kind of parody of uh, the white middle classes in the, in the UK set uh, during Christmas um, with the, uh, as they face the inevitable uh, catastrophe that's coming towards them. And another brilliant uh, kind of quote that Kira mentioned is that when she read the script, what she particularly liked about it was that it was a kind of female perspective of apocalypse. It wasn't- maternal, The maternal aspect of it. The maternal aspect, but also the fact that when we see apocalyptic movies, they're all trying to stop the asteroid coming or they're all trying to get everyone and move to a part of the country. They're all fighting it, right? This and, is kind of more acceptance almost, yeah? Yeah, and I think she found it was interesting to see, well, what do you do when you try and accept death, right? How do you make that acceptable? And death is not acceptable to anyone. Um, and, and, and when you get to my age or a certain age, you start to realize that you're getting closer to death than you were to the youth. So um, what do those inner conflicts feel like too? So she particularly liked the, 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 the female maternal element of how do you protect your loved ones um, when faced with an inevitable catastrophe? Um, and, and in wanting to parody the class system that I'm trying to talk about, it made sense to take the genre, um, the working title genre as such, you know, because the British make period dramas or they make kitchen sink dramas or they make uh, Love Actually, Richard Curtis movies. So it made absolute sense to take the, the, the cliched expectation of those characters in the genre to highlight my, um, 
my uh, examination of their moral value system within it. Now, was this always going to be a Christmas film or where did that seasonal aspect come into play? Well, the whole thing just happened. Like I said, I came back from Jojo and I was like, OK, I need to write a comedy. And I knew that I, I didn't have to deliver anything particularly for anyone else. So I was just like, OK, I'm going to I'm just going to I just sat down and started writing. It all just kind of came together. And I think when I'm asked to uh, to consciously explain the choices, it wasn't like I was like, mm, do I need this? Do I need this? It just came out. But I think what was interesting was this debate I have with my kids is like kids are taught in our culture to be seen and not heard. And the point is, it's important that children are allowed a voice. They have to, they have to inherit our, our mistakes, so they should be allowed an opinion and they should be granted the chance to be heard and to be allowed to speak the truth. Um, but Christmas was the perfect landscape because I think we try and be our best selves at Christmas. And there's a sentimentality that's been hardwired into us. It's like, it's a hopeful time of the year. So to mix hope with despair, I thought were the perfect elements. I mean, everything about the film, the volume is dialed up high on everything. So it's like, how do you take both, how, you know, how do you create conflict? When you, when you start writing stories, you learn that conflict equals drama, but like, what is conflict in a story? So for me, the conflicts are just playing with the opposing elements of everything. Love, hate, trust, distrust, hope, despair. And, and that's really why those two genres work so beautifully with the, the Christmas, um, the Christmas movie and the apocalyptic movie. But you touched upon a little bit uh, today, but you've also said before that one of the main reasons you wanted to make this film was to start conversations, especially with your son. What specific conversations did you have in mind? Was it, was it, was it about the, the aspect of mortality or, or was there more to it than that? Oh, I don't think I wanted my children to have to have to talk about mortality so much because they're kids. They can't yeah. possibly. I mean, they know we're not going to be living forever. So I think my kids are kind of looking forward to the day where they don't have to be having in their face every day. But I think really the question is that we often say to our kids, you know, we didn't have that growing up. You're lucky. You have things we didn't have. And it's such a boring conversation because they're like, who cares? And it also you can't expect a child to understand what they don't have. But what I do try and say to my kids is that we're your parents and we don't get it always right, you know? And, and, and I want my kids to not just accept uh, bad decisions. Like, you know, you always say to your child, if you were told to jump off a cliff, would you jump off a cliff? So I'm trying to train my children to thinking about other people uh, and to find their own sense of self and their own trust. It took me a long time to find that as an adult. So I want my children. And if I can be the person that can mirror that or challenge that, uh, then they're safe to do that with me. So I want them to know that I don't always get it right the teachers don't always get it right. Government doesn't want to always get it right. It's not to not trust the system, but to question the morality within the system and to say, is it right that I get to sleep at night in a nice cozy bed? And there are children living in the refugee camps sleeping in snow. Um, they can't be responsible for that. But as, a, as adults, they might be able to help. So really, I want them to know that there, there are people in the world who can make things different. And if they choose that path, they might be better equipped for that. So I'm not trying to lecture or preach, but just give them a, 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 a supportive environment to question the, 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 the unfairness of our society. Now, you, you mentioned Kira earlier. And, and for those who don't know, Kira Knightley, who stars in the film, um, you guys have both kind of talked about this. And you mentioned we mentioned it. We touched upon it a little bit earlier, but there's something very deeply maternal about the film. Were you conscious about that as you wrote it and as you filmed? Was that kind of an intentional thing or was that something that just came out in the process? I don't know 
<clears throat> I mean, I think my experience as a writer and a filmmaker over the years, I've become conscious of things I care about. I wasn't, like I said, trying to tick boxes when I was writing the script. I wasn't going maternal catastrophe, la, la, la. Um, but that is my voice, I suppose. But what was essential and, and, and incredibly uh, was a blessing is that when um, we reached out to Kira, we reached out to Kira because she represents uh, this idea of the perfect British English rose, right? And I think she's had to carry that for many years. And I think it's unfair when actors are boxed into being stereotyped. But it worked for us. It was like, okay, the audience will have an expectation of, um, of Miss Perfect, right? So when we sent her the script and she came back and said she was interested, I was overjoyed and, and, and very admiring of that because I don't think this could ruin her career, but it was a brave choice for her to, to play Miss Perfect, who's not perfect. And, and, and essentially, Kira had become a mother. She'd become a mother five years ago and she became a mother again. She just had her second child. And like me, uh, she's, she, you know, she, well, she's not, but she's a working parent. I haven't always been a working parent. So she had her own um, sense of guilt or conflict with how to be the, the, the perfect mother. And I think interestingly, actually, pandemic has changed that for lots of us. It's like a lot of working parents have discovered that they can be uh, with their children and work. You know, society determines you, can't, you have to be one or the other, which is unfair. So Kira understood the material, essentially. And she didn't just understand it, she related to it, it felt truthful to her, and she was the perfect collaborator. And the film wouldn't have happened without Kira because she came on very, very early on. And a lot of the actors signed up because they're excited about Kira and the script. It wasn't me because they'd never heard of me. But, you know, Kira was a fundamental element. Matthew, Kira, Trudy Celine, but really she should be um, congratulated for taking a chance and supporting a first time filmmaker. Well, um, so and, he, yeah. and I think some, I think, uh, I think some credit there also has to go to your, your son as well. I mean, you just come off Jojo Rabbit and he was brilliant in that. Yeah. Well, Roman wanted to act. This was a choice he made. A friend of ours put him up for a film years before <clears throat> when he was nine and he did a few auditions and he said to me and Ben, oh, I want to act. And we were like, oh dear, no, you don't. <clears throat> and he kept saying, I want to become an actor. So he nagged us for months and eventually we got him an agent and he spent two years auditioning and then eventually got Jojo Rabbit. Mm -hmm. And he worked incredibly hard and, 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 and thanks to Taika for recognizing something in him. But I don't think Roman could have been that character or played in that film had he not had the experience or the childhood he'd had because it wasn't easy, it was tough. And he had to deal with tough subject matter and run around in bombs and, and, and use horrible language. And so Roman was already quite an insightful, um, mature. Look, I, I say Roman and he starts phoning. Yeah, so, I was gonna say, if that's my wife, I just left. <laughs> so um, he he's a very interesting human being. and. All three boys of mine, they all are, but I think Roman has to be, um, his journey is his, and, and I've been grateful to be a part of it um, and to share that with him, but he's quite an extraordinary actor. He just, he, he, he is. So, um, so I think Roman, uh, I mean, I'm proud of him. I think he's an extraordinary person. I think he's an extraordinary actor. And I was explaining there were multiple reasons why the boys are cast in the film, as well as Davida. I don't know if you know that Davida is Thomas and Mackenzie's little sister. Oh, wow. Yeah, and, and, and I knew that the kids playing these roles were going to be in, in a kind of um, chaotic landscape. There was going to be a lot of cast, a lot of crew, and 
a very fast working schedule. And I didn't, and, and difficult material. I didn't want to subject other people's children to such a dysfunctional landscape, but I knew that my children would be fine and would enjoy it and could cope and had us there to support them because I wouldn't have had the time to have been just solely focused on, on four children in the film. So that made sense. And also other than the fact that Rome was exceptional and, and the fact that we've nurtured that acting story to, I mean, Jojo is Tyker's film. That's not, I don't take any credit for that, but um, it took him a long time to get to a place where he would be cast. Uh, so people, I think people sometimes slightly judge that they're like, oh, it's nepotism. It is, but it's also a relationship and it's a journey that takes an awful long time. You don't get here easily, you know? He doesn't, I have, and none of us have. So uh, same for yourself. So sometimes those relationships make sense to celebrate them or to nurture them further, you know? Did you always have um, Roman in mind when you were um, writing this or, or did he find his way into the film in a different way? I definitely had him in mind. I'd written other scripts that I wanted him to be in. I'd written a script ages ago that I wanted him to do before he was in Jojo. Um, because Roman, uh, Roman's got an old soul in him and he, he, he was born and six months later I became pregnant and his brothers came out 30 months later. So he's always, you know, he's always says, you know, I could have had a perfect life if I was a single child. <laughs> And he's got these beautiful brothers who are incredible children, but he's, he's had his own uh, difficulty. And also he's had to put up with me as a mother. So he's always been in touch with uh, a truth of the world. He is very bright emotionally, has a real um, understanding of how to connect to um, the intimacy within the scene and, and people. He's, um, so I wrote the part for him. And the only difficulty I would say is I did worry before we started filming, is he going to listen to me? Is he going to listen to his mother on set? Because, you know, who, who doesn't want, who wants to listen to their parents telling them off? It's, long it's the same reason why they, they, they tell you, you should never try to teach your spouse to ski. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, that's hilarious. I haven't been yeah. skiing, but that's very, very funny. Yeah, okay. I, tried, I tried to teach my wife once how to snow ski. No. No, just I, after about 30 <laughs> minutes, I'm like, we're getting you an instructor. We're just getting you an instructor. <laughs> just getting you an instructor. That's exactly right. And I don't think, actually, funny enough, that's why my husband, who's a cinematographer, that's why he couldn't shoot the film because he doesn't listen to me and I don't listen to him. Um, but um, yeah, I had written it for him. And the only difficulty was, would he listen? And then on the set, when he notices that Kira, Matthew, and uh, and Chope and, and, and Kirby and Lucy and Annabelle were listening to me. He was like, oh, they're, they're proper actors and they're listening to her. They think she's got something interesting to say. So he, he started listening. So uh, speaking of your husband, and you said he's a cinematographer, he's an acclaimed cinematographer. Ben, yeah, did, you, did, you, did you talk with Ben about the story and the idea while you were forming it? And if so, what was his reaction? So when we were prepping the film, he was shooting Eternals. And... Um, I admire Ben's work very, very much. But I used to, years ago, when I was a camera assistant, I was one of his assistants. We met through work, actually. Ah. And, uh, yeah, we won't go there. But we met through work. And, and I also knew, as a first-time filmmaker, and I no disrespect, but to cinematographers don't often listen to their directors, especially not first-time directors. But I had a relationship with the, the visual um, element of storytelling because I'd had this experience working in the camera department. And... Um, and we had a different cinematographer attached and then that, that, that changed because that wasn't working out. And we brought in Sam and Sam was uh, someone I've known my whole life, Sam Renton, our cinematographer, and he had been Ben's right-hand man for many years. So 
Sam came on board as the cinematographer and Ben was the godparent cinematographer. So he was like the mediator in mediation. Uh, so he was silently in the background, uh, giving me and Ben, um, giving me and Sam advice or giving Sam advice with the lighting. Sam and I were in this collaboration together. Ben would operate the second camera, but we didn't really have to talk to each other. And uh, it was perfect. So Ben, Sam had Ben's support when he needed it. I had Sam and we both had Ben to, um, to but it was good for the kids. It was, it was a very uh, fortunate experience. And Matthew Vaughan, who produced the film, he had worked with Ben a lot. So he trusted, he trusted Sam and Ben. He knew that I couldn't really, he knew the film again in the can if they're on set. And I think very quickly, um, I'd spent many years waiting for this opportunity and I'd, I'd trained an awful lot and I'd worked very, very hard. And I knew it was very important. I knew that as a crew member, when I saw directors on set who couldn't make decisions, I was like, you've got one job to do is to make a decision, do your job. So when it was my turn, I was like, I'm not gonna be that filmmaker who wastes anyone's time. I know that time is precious. And I also know a load of crew turn up because they're just doing a job. They don't, they don't get to have the credit or criticism of making a film. You know, they're there to work. So don't waste anyone's time. So that was very, I was very conscious of that, making this film. Now, um, you mentioned Kira earlier and how she came into the picture. Um, is it true you brought her adult coloring books with swear words as kind of a gift when you met? Well, I wanted to bring her a gift. She just had a baby. And, and I know that my, I mean, you can only really, you can't pre predict or project all your own experiences of life onto other people. That's not right. But I did know enough about Kira that she had a sense of humor. And I took her a present and I took a present for the little baby and I took her a coloring book because I'd also read that um, as a parent, as, a, with, as with a brand new baby, your, your brain is done, you're exhausted, you don't get to sleep. And maybe it'd be nice and meditative for her to do some coloring in. And I was looking at coloring books and I saw the coloring book, it was like, fuck you, shit. And I thought, oh, that's funny, I'm gonna risk it. Um, yeah, very good. I can see you've done your research. Thank you very much, David. Yes, I did take her a coloring book for the swear words and she thought it was hilarious. And I also took the kids, her, her little, her eldest daughter, a coloring book. So yeah, I did. I was quite thoughtful in my guess because I, well, I was a fan of hers. I wanted to work with her and I was so grateful to her. I was, I was impressed that she was prepared to take this enormous risk on me in the material. Well, and of course, we've got to chat about the wonderful uh, Matthew Good. Given that he has children as well, what was his reaction to the story when you got to talk to, to him about it? I think you know probably a little bit about this. So casting uh, the character of Simon was very important. And Matthew Vaughan was absolutely fundamental that the person should be a parent. And I was a bit on the fence about that. I was like, we just need a good actor. Actors can act. And he was like, they have to be a parent. And really, Simon was one of the last people we cast. And Matthew had worked with Matthew Vaughan had just worked with Matthew Good. And I and I didn't know Matthew Good. I've seen his work. Obviously, I knew exactly who he was. And uh, he read the script and he said to Matthew Vaughan, "There's no effing way I'm doing this film, right?" <laughs> and Matthew Vaughan said, "To sit on it for a day or two. And we'd had this response a few times with some of our crew and some of our cast that they'd read it and go, "This is horrible." And then they'd come back a day later and go, "I can't stop thinking about it. I have to work on this film." So he came back and he said, actually, I've rethought about it. And I've imagined the film as if I was dealing with my friend's kids. <laughs> and then he wanted to do it. And he's very funny. We spoke and he made some very funny jokes. And uh, again, I mean, thank God to all of them. He was incredible. And I do think his relationship as a parent made a big difference to his performance. He's really heartbreaking in the film and really wonderful. I think he's a perfect example of struggle 
as a father doing the right thing. I think they both are him and Kira. Kira's trying to keep a brave face and be a good mother and be a good friend and be a good host. Matthew's letting her do all those things, but he really is struggling quite beautifully as a parent and his own value system. I mean, he doesn't question his value system, but his own belief system. Does that answer that question? Oh, I think it does very much. Um, now, I don't want to spoil anything, but is there any scene yeah. or shot in the movie that came off on screen better than what you had imagined in the script? Oh, are we talking about, are we talking about the reference of some, uh, are we talking about some people's perception of some of the story elements? Are we talking about that? Yeah, I don't want to spoil anything though. So if you're, if you're, if it's- There has been some debate, which I would like to talk about. My children have just come back from school. Hi boys, I'm just being interviewed. Yeah, they're not answering. Are you all right? Nope, they've gone. Um, there, there's a debate about a certain element of the film being anti-vaccine. And I, it makes me very, very sad because of course I wrote this film pre-pandemic. We started filming the film before the pandemic came to the UK. And I think it's very clear in the film that I'm parodying the privileged classes, that I'm taking a lens on their morality. And I think it's very clear that the boy's argument is pro-socialism. He believes in care for society. And fundamentally the vaccine, which I'm passionately pro-vaccine, is uh, a, a, a way forward into the world, right? It's a, it's a sense of hope and it's something we do, it's a, a small self-sacrifice we do to keep other people safe. So the vaccine is society, it's pro-society. The argument in the film is pro-society. Uh, the boy is debating the use of, um, of a suicide pill. Now that might be a, a, a giveaway, but I think there's enough information online that you might know that. He's debating the trust around information that he believes his moral government is sharing. So he's not trusting, he's not questioning the trust in scientists. And the, by the way, the word, when you, if you ask a child now, what is a scientist? They'd say, someone who makes a vaccine. You ask them what a scientist is two years ago, they'd go, well, I don't know, it's an uh, environmentalist, a doctor, someone who, you know, goes, looks for um, creatures in the snow. I mean, the point is, I used that word when I wrote it, which was an unfortunate word, because it was to talk about uh, the scientists who are debating this climate catastrophe that's coming towards them. So there's some unfortunate language that, in a simplistic way can be misinterpreted. But I think if anyone understands the film, which I hope they do, the film is pro-society. So I don't know how those two misinterpretations can happen. But what I do believe in quite fundamentally is not that I should bring my children up to be rebels and to, to not obey authority, but to question their feelings of truth and their trust around something that doesn't feel right. We all tell our kids that there used to be that great phrase, just say no. You know, when children become teenagers and they're going to be exposed to drugs, you go, just say no. And it's that. It's like, teach your children to have to trust their sense of self, to trust their gut and their gut and don't drop a, jump off a cliff as long as just jump off a cliff. I mean, of course, the kid's wondering what the hell's going on, you know? So that's important, I think. That's an important element to get out there. Is that well, what you were referencing? And, and my experience as 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 a step parent and then as a parent is, if you just if you tell them to just say no without any kind of support behind it, the temptation is to rebel and do the opposite. So, exactly. so you almost have to. You you do need to let them kind of think themselves, or at least ask, to teach them to ask the appropriate questions so they can make the right decisions. Um, this you did mention that this was shot pre-COVID. And in fact, I think this was this the last film in London to be filmed before COVID sent everyone into lockdown? 
It was difficult because we started filming in February and um, the coronavirus was coming out of Wuhan, but it wasn't, I don't know if it had been reported in America or the UK, it definitely hadn't, but my husband was um, emphatically reading about it and was obsessed. And I said, look, I know you're frightened. I know it's scary, but you know, put it down. Oh, sorry, I'll put the do not disturb on again. I was like, put it down. We're going to be fine, right? I don't know why. I genuinely just thought he was being neurotic. And then as, we, as the days went on, the weeks went on, it wasn't fine. And then I had the responsibility of uh, the, my cast and, and crew were working and were they safe and, and were they frightened? And we locked, uh, we, we wrapped two days early. So we wrapped on a Wednesday and the UK were going into lockdown on a Monday. And a lot of the cast were frightened. We had to release cast early. We had to shoot scenes in one takes because they had to get on flights and yeah. Billy had to get to France and Annabelle had to get to America. So the borders were shutting. I mean, it was chaos. It was chaos. And, and, and then I started to feel immoral. I started to feel like, is this the right thing to do? And a credit to Kira, she was like, I will shoot tonight till nine o'clock because we'd wrapped every day at six. She was like, I'll shoot till nine o'clock and then I'm done. And I think everyone else should be done. And and, and I have to credit her to this because I was busy in the mindset of how do I finish the film? You know, I, it's, this isn't my money and how do I protect my crew? How do they? And I called Matthew Vaughan. I said, can we wrap tonight? And he said, yeah, yeah. So we didn't tell the crew, but when Kira, we said, that's a wrap on Kira. And then I said, and that's a picture wrap. And then I went into a room and started crying. <laughs> I could cry thinking about it. And it was, it was a relief because it was scary. Yeah, it was, I felt that it, people needed time to go and buy food and get paracetamol. And we didn't know what we were going into. We didn't know if we yeah. were going into uh, the beginning of a war. You know what I mean? We just, no one knew. And then I think during the post-production, bits of information were being slowly coming out because, you know, one of the questions without revealing too much of the end is, is like, how does that happen, you know? And, 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 and the truth is, if people remember, and they look back over the last two years, we didn't always know how this pandemic was going to affect people. How did it affect the old? How did it affect the young? And, and who, who were more susceptible? And information is delivered slowly over a period of time when, they, when the scientists are given an opportunity to, to collate all the information. So there is definitely, of course, references, but by no means did I intend to traumatize an already uh, traumatized uh, world. Um, is there uh, one moment from the set, maybe it was that last moment that you talked about that that you um, either want to be able to remember or definitely just regardless or not, will absolutely positively just remember for the rest of your life? I think I'll always remember making this film and I'll always have a bit of a heartbreak that it didn't last forever because um, I had waited so long and there was something about the shoot that it couldn't have been more perfect, weirdly enough. Like, I really did have an extraordinary cast. The actors had talent, and measurable talent. They just kept giving, and they were trusting, and they were kind to the children, and they were kind to each other. And, and there was room for people to argue and debate and question things. So that was perfect. The crew were brilliant, and they were, they were hardworking, and they were supportive. I mean, I, I couldn't have asked for more. I had producers who believed in the material. Like, I'd wasted, waited years for that opportunity and I loved it. And I think it was a nice shoot. I think people enjoyed it. So I will never forget, but I will, as I did, I just told you that story about the rap unit makes me cry. It was very, it was very emotional. It was, there was a lot to be responsible for. Um, lastly, what do you hope that audiences will take away from the film as they leave the theater this season? Um, well, 
I know what I intended with the project, which was to, to bring the conversation into the home because I'm that person who gets invited to a party and wants to talk about intense things. They're like, chill out, it's a party, chill out. So I think I, I hoped, uh, I didn't want to lecture anyone in this film, but I, I am saying two things really, which is why, why do people with money and privilege get to make decisions for everyone in the world? Do we choose the right people to decide for us? And as luckily some of our countries, obviously we have the, the chance to vote. Like who do we vote for? Who do we choose to, who do we empower to make choices for society? Should it automatically just be someone who's had a good education has got a silly posh accent like me? Or uh, do we make decisions that means that the underrepresented are cared for? And I do think that we have to have an element of truth in the household where children are allowed to be heard and, and, and they, they're going to inherit our mistakes. So we should be responsible for, for owning them. Not necessarily, we can't change anything. We can't, we can't all become activists or all become soldiers or all become medical workers, or, but we can uh, facilitate the truth in, in, in the home without it being a constant kind of debate. But that for me is, a, is, is something I hope the film provokes, which is, a question, is questions that people want to talk about. Camille, thank you so much for your time. And, and everyone, go see this film, Silent Night. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Camille Griffin. Thank you, David. Thank you so much.